0: become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash world talk radio
1: the following program is being brought to you on the voice america health and wellness channel for more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voice america Welcome to Neuro Matters, the Brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman.
2: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Neuromatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I welcome you to our program on Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. I mentioned last week that it is estimated that $203 billion per year is spent for diagnosis and management of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. And I also mentioned last week that this number is expected to explode to an estimated $1.2 trillion per year by the year 2030. There are some hidden costs as well, and I'd like to introduce you to them. Medicare pays for the care of a lot of chronic conditions, diabetes, congestive heart failure, renal failure, uh, coronary artery disease, COPD, things like this. When one of these chronic conditions exists with a dementia, the cost of the care for that condition triples and in some cases quadruples. And so it is not as immediately apparent, but the cost of care for many conditions increases when dementia is present. In addition, I want to throw this statistic out to you, and these are based on uh, Medicare data from 2008. People over the age of 65, without any evidence of dementia, average about 234 hospitalizations per 1,000 persons per year. If dementia is present, that number rises to 780 hospitalizations Per thousand people per year, and so again, we see that the cost of dementia is subtle and is overwhelming at the same time. Now we have a, a wonderful guest that's going to be joining us in a little bit, and we're going to be talking about caregiving. And I came across a couple of statistics that I might inter- uh, that uh, I thought might interest you there. Most care provided for people with dementia is unpaid, about 80% of it, and that amounts to, in the United States, about 17.5 billion hours with a cost of about $216 billion if it were all paid for. Caregivers take care of patients with a lot of different diseases, but when dementia is present, caregivers tend to provide more extensive assistance and for longer periods of time, especially in that past year of life, caregiving is very intensive. So we're going to talk about this. Uh, We are, as you can tell by the numbers, standing on the brink of the Alzheimer's disease epidemic. This is a disease you want to know about, and I hope that this program helps you to know about it. So come on in grab a cup of coffee and pull up a chair. Let's have a good discussion. Now, I would like to introduce you to Howard Gretzner, a man who is knowledgeable and experienced in dementia care, an excellent teacher, and a wonderful colleague. Howard, thank you so much for joining us.
0: It's my pleasure.
2: I'm going to give you some background on Howard. Um, Howard has worked in clinical gerontology for over 33 years with special interest in Alzheimer's disease and the dementias, identifying brain impairment, adapting, uh, helping people to adapt to impairment, coping and caregiving depression, complicated forms of bereavement. So Howard has been a busy man for these 33 years. He is the author of a book, Alzheimer's, A Caregiver's Guide and Source Book. Now, Howard, I don't want to embarrass you with this, but that was originally published 25 years ago.
0: Is that and how it, far is now, it is now to eighty <laughs> eight <laughs> that's that's
2: how far it is to eighty eight well, and that was we scratched nice our head thing. and I've been
0: around for a while wasn't it <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's right um and it is now in its third edition. It has been an excellent contribution. Howard is uh, on the uh, Institute of Gerontological Studies Advisory Committee at Baylor University, where he is involved with research. Uh, He has also participated in the development of the State of Texas Alzheimer Plan, serving on the Managing the Person with the Disease Committee. And finally, Howard has presented throughout the United States, and he has presented in so many different venues, and um, he has as well uh... organized support groups for direct care staff of nursing homes that provide the care and support and education to the residents and their families so howard thank you so much for bringing this experience and this knowledge to our discussion
0: again it's my pleasure howard
2: what is clinical gerontology?
0: it uh... kind of came out of the whole idea of gerontology studies anyway in clinical means that I'm looking more at working with people who have medical issues and especially the psychological and social adaptation to that. Also, it tied in real well to a lot of my earlier work, which was in geriatric mental health. And in, back in that day, of course, we saw a lot of dementias uh, presented to the mental health system and to... Psych hospitals, even when there was a lot of uh, delusions, um, agitation, and aggressive behavior so that 's kind of a way of me capturing with uh, my educational background the focus that that I enjoyed working with. Tell me about
2: what you do professionally now
0: right now, a big part of my work is counseling with family uh, members who are in the role of caregiving. But also more with people with early-stage dementia or sometimes working with families where the condition's a little further along, but they're still trying to learn how to relate to that loved one. And uh, that's been a very valuable resource to people because there's a whole lot that we have to learn to understand differently. You know, when people talk about uh, becoming a caregiver, a part of that is learning to know and understand and even respond differently to a person who might be a parent or a spouse that you've known very differently. So we're not just learning new stuff. We have to undo some parts of the old parts that we understand about loved ones and try to figure in what difference dementia is making or what difference we're making to the dementia that's developing.
2: So, help us to understand then what exactly is a caregiver? what does a caregiver do, and um, how does how do caregivers generally um, relate to the patient
0: okay that 's a good question because another part of the problem that we have out here in uh field of services is that we know we 're only touching the tip of the iceberg of the number of people who are becoming caregivers of loved ones with dementia. So part of the problem is a lot of family members initially don't really identify with the idea of being a caregiver. They see themselves in the uh, role that's already existing, for example, child uh, spouse uh, in a few cases maybe parents so it takes a while to get that under the belt and what really begins to do it is they gradually see they're having to assume more and more responsibilities for activities the person used to do that may be something like uh, paying bills it may be something like taking care of the, the yard it may be preparing meals so they're having to learn or begin to do things that are new And when tasks or the need for tasks begin to enter the picture, I think that's when caregivers really begin to see that they're becoming caregivers. Unfortunately, that becomes more and more a focus, and it becomes, in fact, uh, a focus on doing tasks. And sometimes what I have found, that begins to be at the expense of the relationship because task is a way we try to take care of things, needs, and problems. But really, what I try to help people support and continue to value is they need to continue to foster relationship, a relationship that's harder to keep because of cognitive changes, but also they have to pay attention more to the reality of their loved one, which is gradually becoming not a factual cognitive reality, but rather one defined by emotion and relationship. So we need to keep the relationship part in this caregiver role of taking care of loved ones. It
2: sounds – oh, I'm sorry, Howard, go ahead.
0: Okay. Well, and of course the other problem I like to, to use to remind people, there's a real neat scale called a caregiver vigilance scale that I think real, real dramatically illustrates this transition from being uh, in a family role with the person to actually becoming a caregiver, taking care of a lot of activities. The caregiver vigilance scale kind of refl- shows it because if you ask a person how much time do they need to spend with the person or how much time they need to be there for a person, that's going to eventually represent a very different and very big change in their lifestyle. For example, the greatest stressors are not triggered by what's actually happening from my perspective. They're triggered by what people are fearful of happening. And hence, caregivers begin to put their whole mind and keep their mind busy, even worrying about what could happen and not only what is happening. And I think that's the more dramatic but the more troubling um, outcome of caregivers becoming so involved in taking care and trying to help their loved ones continue to manage what part of life they can.
2: So it sounds to me like what you're saying is a person does not overnight become a caregiver, such as would be the case in trauma cases, stroke, or something like that, but gradually merges into a caregiving role and somewhere along the way says, wow, I have become a caregiver.
0: Right, and by then a lot of them, yeah, and that I think shows just how awkward and difficult it can be because they're also trying to keep the person where they used to be in functioning and activities, but they gradually begin to be aware they're also possibly losing that person. And then once they get really involved in all the things that they need to do, they haven't really, they haven't really planned for that. And then yet, their whole life begins to be gradually dominated by it. In research, there are two characterizations of that, and you tell me which one you'd prefer. One is role captivity is another way of describing caregiving and dementia care. The other one is role engulfment. But I think those really point to just what begins to happen, especially with the absence of so many needed resources.
2: I think it will be helpful for us to discuss those two models or or theoretical frameworks for understanding caregiving after we take a break in uh, just a minute or so here. Um, and uh, I really like what you've said about the caregiver vigilance scale. It's hard to wrap our brains around what a caregiver does. Yeah. It's hard to evaluate it in some objective manner. And it's, uh, it's very difficult then to communicate that from one person to another. Well, Howard, we're going to take a three minute break, and when we come back, let's talk about role captivity and role engulfment.
1: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Welcome
2: back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for staying with us. We are talking with Howard Gratzner, the author of the book Alzheimer's, A Caregiver's Guide and Source Book. Howard, you were talking about the Caregiver Vigilance Scale.
0: Right. Um, let me just kind of read something from that, because I think it captures despite you know caregivers or family members becoming caregivers hearing a great deal about what it 's going to be like or trying to figure that out, I think they 're all still caught off guard by just how much that begins to engage them, but because they 're so engaged in mind, body, and emotion, it also takes them away from a lot of things so here 's one example. Some people feel caregiving is a time-consuming job. They say that even when they are not actually doing something special for or with their relative, they feel on duty or the need to be there for him or her. So how many hours a day would a person they care for, would you feel like you need to be there or on duty to care for your family member? That's a very different question for how much time do you spend doing things for them or with them. And very often, you know, the answer to that, 12 hours, 18 hours, some even put down 24 hours. So their mind, their emotions, everything about their life begins to be focused on the needs of that person developing symptoms of dementias. And it's not something that they intended because of the awkwardness or the insecurity of knowing how that person is going to do. We began to fill in blanks, even if the blanks are not there. And so gradually, the lifestyle that preceded the dementia, you know, that lifestyle is threatened, and many people give that up in the interest of having more time to potentially be able to take care of loved ones. That sounds like a reasonable thing to do, but we've then got to ask the question, well, years later, when all of this is over, is that going to hurt the caregiver's reentry into life? and i think it does because they give up a lot that they may in fact really need to keep their lives supported and meaningful during the years of caregiving it's Excellent also an issue. issue yeah and it's also an issue that points to the underlying grief process that's been going on because how one of the things that we've got to do to resolve grief is reconnect with a, a sense of community again but if you give up and lose that whole sense of community that's, that's an even greater, uh, creates greater difficulties for family members to return to life, uh, if they've given it up because caregiving can last a long time. What do you mean by sense of community, Howard? Sense of community, that's the roles and activities. It may even for some be a partial job or other activities. Uh, it's also relationships, friendships, things that you used to do and do them with. You know, family members often will start giving up some of those, let's say church even, because they don't feel comfortable getting the person to church or staying in church or it's just too much of a hassle. Uh, So that is one example. Another is it's less and less comfortable to do things they used to do together, which is just a a partial picture of what leads to the social isolation that many caregivers experience, staying with the person in the home.
2: So when you talk about caregiving, then in part you talk about new things that a person is going to be taking responsibility for, but you also talk about someone being taken out of the life that they had already developed. Yeah,
0: and so we need to try to help them as reasonably as possible hold on to some parts of that life, because think about it. You know, the part that we often give up to take care of people, particularly physical conditions, uh um broken limb or something else we kind of end up getting a chance to to pull away from that if that person it becomes more capable of functioning again but that's not so the you case ha- in dementia.
2: that case then you have a person who has become impaired in some way and from that moment of impairment forward is on the mend and there's less and less demand from yeah, the caregiver.
0: Yeah, yeah, so we can't that's not a fair comparison to what caregivers with dementia are going through. They're probably continuing to give up some things because there's more demand. But I but in order to survive and to continue in that role they need to continue to replenish themselves. And some of that's going to come from the support relationships and other meaningful activities they had before they clearly began to see themselves as caregivers.
2: Now, let's talk about these terms, role captivity and role engulfment. Okay. What do they mean?
0: Well, basically it means that the person who is caring for the person uh, with dementias what that person needs to become uh, begins to become more dominant in their lives and while they had many other roles in life as we were just discussing they be they see that they have to take on more and more of a role of helping the person they have to help them remember to do things they have to prepare things for them they have to monitor safety uh, or other concerns that might become risk And to do so, their focus begins to move away from these other things that I was mentioning to being solely on the needs of the person that they love and care for. But by doing so, they're not prepared to continue to do that over a long period of time. That's why the most deadly um, negative in the life of a caregiver isn't just stress, but chronic stress, sources of stress that don't really ever go away. And that really diminishes their energy, it diminishes their ability to adapt new challenges, plus it means it makes it harder to take care of themselves because they tend to devote so much of their energy on the care and consideration of their loved ones. So that's at least one picture of what we mean the role takes over their life. Not so different maybe in some ways those folks that might be, what, workaholics, that's kind of an example of that role taking over their lives. But are any of those over, on
2: the radio right now? I'm sorry? Are any of those workaholics on the radio right now? That would be you and me, Howard.
0: Well, yeah, they're all out working, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, as meaningful as that is, it sometimes diminishes other parts of life that are still important uh, for family caregivers to try to stay connected with. So when I work with people, I try to work with that end of it and holding on what they can is what they're learning to do that they could depend upon their loved ones to do before dementia.
2: Yes, and you've mentioned the word grief a number of times. While this may seem like an excessively simple question, I suspect that it may be more complex than uh, initially seen. What do caregivers grieve?
0: Well, first of all, they have to learn to see that some of what they call stress is really grief-related. Richard Schultz, one of the great uh, researchers in in Alzheimer's caregiving, uh, did a study with some uh, other researchers, and they actually were able to see that a lot of what was being called stress are really grief reactions. So what do caregivers grieve? Well, the big one in the room is... They're grieving the loss of a relationship. Uh, it's changing and being forced to change because of the dementia and it becomes more one-sided in some ways and it's not as balanced as it used to be. So they're, they're grieving that. They're seeing their loved ones who they knew to be very capable and functional not able to do eventually some of the simplest things. They're grieving not only the life that they're having trouble with because of the challenges to dementia, they're also grieving the life that can't be. For example, retirement plans, uh, trips, spending time with families. They're They're losing that aspect of life. And because of all that they're devoting and focusing on the needs of their loved one, caregivers, again, may also be losing other parts of their life that were meaningful say, the difficulties of a spousal caregiver not being able to spend as much time being grandma or grandpa with grandchildren because they can't take the time uh, or take away their focus from the needs of their loved one. So it's really pretty broad, isn't it?
2: Yes, it really is. What helps the grief process for a caregiver?
0: One, I think they need to have a chance to be listened to. Uh, one of the things as professionals working with that group, we're often attending to what they see as problems or needs. And in fact, their grief ex- manifestations may be right in front of us. So we've got to pay attention to that and give them a chance to be recognized for that and have a chance to be listened to. I think that's the first step. Uh, or to re-identify or relabel what they've been calling stress is really having more to do with their sense of um, sadness or their their dread about the future because they're going to be facing it alone, things like that, so we need to so actually as you attend.
2: as you then uh, Howard, forgive me for interrupting, but this is a very good point. as you see the stress as actually being a grief process, how does that change anything?
0: Well, if it's a grief process, if we can enter into some of that with some support for it it may create that whole function of anticipatory grief, which will help the the response to the loss at the end of of this journey, as opposed to a lot of bottled-up stuff and a lot of emotions being mislabeled, uh, for example, resentment. Resentment being confused for what's really feeling bad about being left by this person because of that disease. And a lot of that's uncomfortable for them to talk about. So we need to be open to that.
2: Well, thank you for that clarification, and that is very helpful. You know, in today's world, caregiving has changed significantly from even 20 or 30 years ago. And um, there are certain circumstances that come up, and I'd like to see if we can get into one of these before we go to break. The long-distance caregiver...
0: Yeah, um, that one's difficult, and it's also a difficult issue for grief because those folks feel terrible about not being able to be present sometimes. And I get calls from them from all over the United States sometimes if their relative lives in in this area, and they don't feel good about that because part of us feeling good about helping is actually knowing there's something that we can do. The other part of that is they don't feel like they're maybe being able to be as, apart as much. So they can certainly have contact by phone. Uh, nowadays, things like Skyping and things like that. I've got one one uh, example of that where the daughter has to work in Japan sometimes, but she can Skype with her father here in Waco and have some personal contact. So there are roles, and we don't all have to do the same helping role. That's important. We can, Maybe we're more important as a person who's talking with them, socializing with them. Maybe it's more important that we can help with finances or uh, legal and financial matters. So We need to look at what different roles do we have that don't really depend upon whether or not we're in the physical presence of the person, but we have knowledge that we can contribute to the needs of the family as well as that person.
2: Well, thank you, uh, Howard. Thank you for pointing that out. We are going to go to break now, and we will return to have more discussion with Howard Gretzner.
1: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters, screen for memory disorders or forget it. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. We are back. Thank you for joining
2: us. We are talking with Howard Gretzner, who is giving us the wonderful opportunity to learn from his over 33 years of experience in clinical gerontology. So, Howard, uh, again, I'm so grateful to you for being here. Let's talk about solutions. Let's talk about what kinds of services, support systems are available to help the caregiver.
0: Okay, well, let me kind of take a step even back further in the beginning. You know, one of the things that caregivers uh, need to know as early as they can is what is changing about their loved ones. They may see some small symptom changes. It may not be consistent. But if they have concerns and they try to seek some medical assistance and diagnosis or treatment, it would help greatly if they get a better picture of what their loved one might be really experiencing. Often, in fact, most often families are not hearing about the specific cause of the dementia, like Alzheimer's, Lewy body, uh, frontotemporal, vascular, etc., those kinds of conditions. At most, they may just hear dementia. And many of them have chosen to think that that's good news because they were afraid they were going to hear Alzheimer's. Which is, of course, the most common cause of dementia. But. I have that heard t- that many times. Yeah, and it takes, it takes them down a trail that moves away from support and help and delays their getting connected with these resources that could help them that we're talking about. So, I think we really need to encourage and try to help them get more of a connection with their loved one's doctor, try to get releases done, and the sooner the better because if the person's too advanced, the doctor's going to think, well, they don't have capacity to, you know, consent to this release anyway or something like that. But they need to try to develop a relationship with the physician early or his or her staff so that they can work together with their loved ones rather than get crosswise with them because everybody's on a different page. So that might just be enough to say about that, but that's really important because if you think you're dealing with dementia, and that means something that doesn't result in Alzheimer's disease symptoms, then that's going to take you down a track that's going to confuse you and take you away from help. Because a lot you of people. You know, services- part, of the,
2: uh, part of the issue there as well may be that some caregivers are information seekers yeah. and some are information avoiders.
0: Yeah, that's true because as you're uh, suggesting by that comment, it's not easy to accept that this kind of condition may be happening to a loved one. So for that reason, some may at times avoid. But we also need to make sure medical uh, interventions will direct the family members and the person with dementia toward community resources and help. The best example of that that I can give, uh, at least with the Alzheimer's Association uh, across the nation, is the early stage groups that we're doing. Those allow families and persons with early stage dementia to begin with support to face what they're dealing with and what they can do to have some impact on the kind of future that they want. That's
2: Just to different. make the point more forcefully, Howard, forgive me for interrupting, but okay. you know uh, i am I, uh, I often encounter surprise when we talk about the activities that go on in that early stage group, but mm-hmm. these are persons that are experiencing the cognitive decline, some of them may have communication difficulties, some may have more memory difficulties than anything else, uh-huh. yet they do come together in a group context, and it's very therapeutic, very helpful, and very empowering for them as well.
0: That's right, and it also says there's still persons because they get to participate as persons, you know, because those groups, they work together to start with, and then another part of each group is where we break off into caregiver support and persons with dementia support. So we've got to, see, we've moved, we're moving closer to the beginning of some of the dilemmas of caregivers and persons with dementia, and families because if if we had something else that we could recognize that it would help to learn about it to be able to cope with it over time, then we would probably do that, wouldn't we?
2: Yes, we would. But would we're you mind too
0: ex- late still to even begin to entertain whether or not we really need to do something?
2: That's correct. Would you expand a little bit more on the role of the Alzheimer Association in all sure. of
0: this? There are a number of core services that the Alzheimer's Association has. One is Helpline, uh, and that's uh, a number that can be called uh, any time of day or night in the United States, and a good example of that is if uh, office is in the area that the person's calling, it will go to that office. If, however, they call after hours, then it's going to go to master's level uh, clinicians uh, with our, our national office in Chicago. So that's always available for folks. Another set of services that we have is uh, what's called um, consultation, care consultation. And in my case, in this office, we do counseling, which pretty much takes the place of a lot of the care consultation. There are also support groups, and those are for caregivers, and there are even some that can be done by phone for those folks that can get out. So there are lots of ways that family members and even persons with dementia can connect up in some of what I've said there. There's a program called MedAlert Safe Return uh, so that people can get registered with the National Association, and family members at least have some backup if they happen to uh, walk away, get lost, and wonder. So that's just some of it. Plus, most Alzheimer's Association chapters... Uh, provide a lot of annual special symposiums or conferences and a lot of uh, monthly and other educational programs. So that's all there. But if people can't see that it could help them, then they're going to be like that caregiver of years ago. Well, I'm not a caregiver. I don't need those things yet. So we've got to keep making the connection of what's happening, what's causing it, and what kind of things would help both the caregiver and persons with dementia.
2: How are these services from the Alzheimer Association paid for?
0: Most of that's coming from grants. It's coming from the walks to end Alzheimer's that all chapters have. It's coming from donations. Um, For example, my office, I've had a federal grant, a caregiver training and education grant, for many, many years to help underwrite a lot of the work we do with family caregivers. And that is available in, I think, probably most areas in the United States. So that's sometimes it may even be uh, available more clearly through area agencies on aging, which are also another good resource for family caregivers. They provide a lot of programs like respite care. Uh, a lot of times caregivers... The the only thing that will help is they need to find some way to know their loved one will be safe to allow them to take a break, and that's what the respite care programs are designed to do, someone to stay with that person so the caregiver can get their mind away from all that's in front of them as well as all in the future that they fear or are concerned about. Uh, Let me
2: ask you uh, about a a sort of a special circumstance in Alzheimer's and with respect to caregiving. And that's the individual that has onset, that has the diagnosis when they're still in their middle age years, when they're still working and making a living and perhaps raising uh, children and things like that. Often we are looking at a a spouse rather than a uh, child. that would be providing the care. Can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah,
0: that's that's a very disturbing uh, area to consider because of uh, several reasons. One, the fact they're they're even still in the workforce or gradually being phased out of the workforce means that they also have a lot of other responsibilities. And I've got cases uh, that I'm seeing currently where that's the case. They've lost their job. And then that falls on the other spouse uh, to try to take care of not only them, but continue whatever job they're in. And a lot of our resources, as you're aware of, are based on age, if not disability. So a lot of the that's, services that we talked about sometimes can be limited or restricted to people who are over 60 or over 65. Yes, and that's been that a real whole, dilemma. Yeah, and it cuts yeah. out all of those young-onset people. That's something... Uh, Howard, uh,
2: we, we have a caller. Let's go ahead and take this call, okay. if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, Retz from Michigan. How are you? Hello? Retz, are you there? I am. Well, thank you for calling. What uh, what would you like to ask Howard?
1: Well, my question is, um, and I'm so so getting so much information from this, because of the expense that, you know, that it does with caregiving and stuff, um, I would like to know about legal help. I mean, is there avenues to go for legal help that uh, you're talking about the helpline that you have available and things of that nature? So that was my question, you know, just some legal advice. Where can they go to get some legal advice?
0: Okay. That's an important question, and it's also one of those that families need to address earlier because mm-hmm. uh, if you look at the care that uh, family the person with dementia is going to need over time a right. lot of it can be provided for a long time in the home as long as the family member can do it or other caregivers can come in some of which can be underwritten by other programs but a lot of which becomes private pay so in order to plan to be able to manage all of that and also for the surviving person that, who we who is going to be the caregiver to survive there has to be legal and financial planning. Okay. And that has to be done with the idea in mind that we need to have resources to take care of both of us. And okay. there are, in fact, attorneys and some of those same attorneys, often their elder law attorneys can help with, uh, different kind of legal documents and approaches, trust, et cetera, to try to protect some funding, but also to make some available to the needs uh also there are financial advisors that uh caregivers can seek out that also has specialized knowledge in knowing how to manage uh portfolios for people who have resources that's terribly important to try to plan to protect something for persons with dementia i've got to say that sometimes the only solutions to take care of both a person with dementia and persons who are caring for them, their spouses. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the only way both can survive requires divorce to take place. Oh. That's a sad comment on, on the world we're living in, that they're not better options. But those well, folks- that, is
2: a, that is a sad comment, Howard. And, Rhett, I really appreciate your question, and there are some other directions that the question about legal services will go as well. Can you mm-hmm. stay on the line while we take a break, and sure. we will follow up when you come back? Okay. All right. Thank you. We are going to take a short break.
1: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Caring for someone with autism can be full of challenges and triumphs. Wherever you are on your autism journey, we all benefit from good information and guidance. Join host Rob Haupt every week for a friendly show that will leave you inspired and informed. Tune in to Autism Spectrum Radio. Our guests include parents, advocates, and experts to discuss current experiences, treatments, and breakthroughs for those living with autism. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. And we are back.
2: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying the show. We are here with Howard Gretzner, author of Alzheimer's, A Caregiver's Guide and Sourcebook, now in its third edition. And uh, at the uh, uh, end of the discussion prior to the break, Retz from Michigan called and had asked about some of the legal issues. Retz, are you back on the line with us now? I am. Thank you. Great. I appreciate you staying with us through the break. You know, when we consider some other aspects of the legal issues, it it becomes – uh, much more confusing and um, and sad in many ways. That has to do with things like guardianship when someone is not right. taking care of him or herself. It has to do with executing powers of attorney and determining who in the family should uh, uh, be given the power of attorney to manage different things. It also involves things like advanced directives and things like that. It has been my hope uh, somewhere in the next uh, six to eight weeks to have a program just addressing estate and legal issues. So I hope that we will be able to address those questions in more detail at that point.
1: That would be great. I would appreciate it. Thank you.
2: You are welcome. And Howard, I uh, would like to come back to you now and ask you to discuss a situation that is more common, I think, than we realize. Uh, I have had the the very um, unfortunate um, experience and responsibility to talk with a gentleman whose wife died uh, from Alzheimer's disease, who has remarried, and now his new wife is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Um, They have not been married decades. They've been married a few years. Talk about blended family issues.
0: Okay. Well, what you're describing, I have cases like that as well. And I want to make a comment, a sort of background to all of that. Many, many years ago, we heard that families of elderly didn't take care of them. That was, that was a myth. <laughs> and yet, you know, when we're faced with the issues, uh, the conflicts, the challenges of blended families, you know, we also see how they struggle to try to work together, but so how sometimes that's very difficult. So I think what we've got to look at, you know, can blended families work together? And again, everybody doesn't have to do the same thing. Sometimes, uh, what I have found is that sometimes some of the family members of one spouse or the other do want to be involved. Some may not. I think we've got to accept that, at least uh, in the beginning, and see what the ones that can help will do. Uh, we don't want to create more negative feelings because some of it's about uh, what some folks tend to deserve or what role they think to, they want to play. And also, if they're blended, it may also mean people live all over the United States so they're not really uh, geographically close. But, you know, we're going to certainly be focusing on what that spousal caregiver first needs if there is a spousal caregiver.
2: Uh, And, And of course, that would certainly encourage older couples who do, uh, older individuals who do remarry to articulate those things through for each other and for the family at the time of the marriage.
0: Yeah, and because the more out in the open and what folks uh, hope for expect or want, the more children and such have that, that gives some guidance around questions that are hard to get answers around. But also, if there are children involved, and perhaps not, because you also have the other part where both spouses are impaired, one physically and one with cognitive disturbances, that's not uncommon either. And they actually function together sometimes for a while with one taking over what the other can't do. But children need to know what roles are needed or what they can do and then those uh if we're talking about spouses that are trying to help, uh we need to know what they need and what the children can provide. So sometimes in, in family um family counseling, you know, if you look at that kind of issue, sometimes we've got to finally agree to put if there are conflicts involved, we have to agree to put the conflicts aside so that we can care. Uh, about and respond to the more urgent here and now kinds of needs. So Howard, I'd thing. like to
2: ask you. Uh, I'd like to ask you just one more quick question okay. while we have you here, and that is: How do we help the person who has dementia grieve the loss of a spouse?
0: Well, actually, um, Dr. James Eller and one of his students at Baylor, we've done research on that. And we've actually published a paper on the response of people with dementia to the loss of loved ones that were very close to them. Here's what we found. Uh, unlike what many people would suspect, when somebody loses a spouse, the caregivers say, and the person with dementia remains, more often than not, especially if they're past early-stage dementia, They're not going to experience that loss so much with the sadness everybody else expects. Rather, developmentally, they have regressed back to an 8- to 12-year-old child who loses a parent. And the question isn't about the sadness of the loss. It moves toward the question of, who's going to take care of me? Because they have bonded with that person, not so much later in the disease as the spouse, but rather is the person who takes care of everything. So they're missing uh, that person, and that then exposes their security and needs to belong and feel connected.
2: Howard, thank you You so much for sharing your experiences with us. On behalf of our listening audience, I'm very grateful to you, and I know that you have been very helpful to a lot of people who have been listening. We uh, are coming to the close of the program, and I hope that uh, it has been both enjoyable to you and informative to you. I want to talk just a little bit about Dr. Alzheimer as we close the program. You know, he... as I said last week, was a great scientist and a great clinician. He was also a, a very large man who had the nickname prugel which is German way of saying big old boy. He was a large fellow, and uh, they... Um, His students had many funny stories to tell about the difficulties that he had getting in and out of the uh, microscopic photographic equipment and things like that. But one story I thought I might tell that uh, you might find interesting. One day, Alzheimer sneaked out of his office and disguised himself as a toy vendor Uh, on the street. He came into the office and told the students that he wanted to fight Dr. Alzheimer, and needless to say, the students became very upset because they did not recognize him. We have a great program lined up for next week. Have you ever wondered what it's like to experience the cognitive cognitive change of Alzheimer's disease? A woman named Libby Embry, Teacher of the Year, Two years later, at 59 years of age, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and she's going to join us for a discussion about what these experiences have been like. Thank you very much for being in our audience this evening. Any suggestions that you have for future programs, please email me, sdbrinkman at hotmail.com, and I will do my best to bring interesting, relevant, and uh, up-to-date information to you. Once again, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for listening to Neuro Matters: the Brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.